I know uh, uh, our, our, our friend Gary Friedlander is volunteering in Israel right now as a doctor. Oh, Cheryl, welcome back. And uh, great to see you all. Thank you for joining. And um, excited to hop in today with um, Emmanuel Levinas. Um, and yeah, thanks, Lauren. Maybe we'll get to Fackenheim sometime as well. Squeeze him in there. Um, important, important voice. So let's start with a little poll question here. Why are humans capable of inflicting unbearable cruelty upon others? Why are humans capable of inflicting unbearable cruelty upon others? Is it one, because humans are fundamentally evil? Is it two, because people are capable of the dehumanization of the other? Or is it three, that ideological confusion can block basic empathy? Two and three are a little bit of a nuanced difference. One is that well, evil, obviously, people are people are evil. Two is that there's a process of dehumanization. And three is that there's kind of an ideological confusion. You can come to believe something that in the name of something bigger, right, you can no longer see people in the name of that. Let's see our results here. I know we have a small group today, but nonetheless. Uh, okay. 20% uh, because humans are fundamentally evil. 60% because of a process of dehumanization. And 20%, an ideological confusion that blocks basic empathy. Okay, so Levinas is going to offer us a great insight into this uh, into this question. And not just an insight, but a pathway forward to some degree. So why are humans often so tragically cruel to one another? What spurs us to take action in the world? What teaches us on a soul level that acts of loving kindness are necessary? Emmanuel Levinas was born in pre-World War I Lithuania, but he moved to France for his studies. During World War II, he worked as a translator for the French military, and he was taken as a German prisoner of war, which ironically benefited him because unlike so many of his fellow Jews, he wasn't taken to a concentration camp. Levinas had a deep interest in the Talmud, but as a philosopher, he's best known for his work on the ethics of alterity meaning the ethics of otherness. This came about because the Holocaust pushed Levinas to rethink the great problems of philosophy. He wondered, how could a society as famously enlightened as Germany's, the one that gave birth to the greatest modern philosophers, have committed the atrocities of the Shoah, of the Holocaust? His answer was that the dominant philosophy of the time had become too far removed from basic ethical concerns and emphasize abstractions that could cause us to forget our ethical responsibilities to others. Consequently, 
A paradigm shift in philosophical thinking was in order, Levinas said. The question of what it means to be human could not be answered through logic and the imagination, but was to be found first and for foremost in the face of each person we encounter. The face is what is uh, paramount for Levinas, not abstract ideas. When we encounter the face of another human being, Levinas believed, it should be as if we're standing at Mount Sinai, hearing God commanding us. The dimension of the divine opens forth from the human face, he writes. Let me repeat that quote. The dimension of the divine opens forth from the human face. The human face demands so much of us that we are pulled into a divinely commanded level of commitment. The proximity of God, devotion itself, is devotion to the other man. Then one need not even hear the other speak for this to take place. For the encountering of the other, we hear them communicating with us through the presence of their face. This isn't exactly the same as Levinas's fellow Jewish thinker, Martin Buber's philosopher, who we already talked about. His, his philosophy of dialogue, right? Levinas is about the face. Buber cares about the face also, but really about dialogue, about the voice. The voice of another awakens us rather than the face of another. This is because for Buber, the encountering of the other is not so much about the political and moral implications that spring from it. From Buber's perspective, it is about understanding and recognizing the other as a person different from myself, yet nevertheless in relationship with me all the same. For Levinas, however, the encounter with the face of the other places obligations and responsibilities on us. It compels us in a way that will inevitably have both ethical and political ramifications. So let me just spell this point out a little more clearly because I think it's important. Remember Buber's I and thou and I and it that we just talked about very recently? So for Buber, you can't, you can't another person can't be a means to another end. An, another person is an ends in themselves. And that means for Buber, the encounter with the other has no moral or political implications. Why? Because if my encounter with you invokes some other obligation, then I've made you instrumental towards that political end. It's a spiritual encounter, not a moral encounter for Buber. For Levinas, it's the opposite. For Levinas, my encounter with the face of you is not a spiritual encounter as much. I mean, there's a dimension of that, but it has to actually awaken me morally and politically. My encounter with you awakens me to a, a larger question of justice beyond just your being. So Buber takes a spiritual approach. Levinas takes a moral approach for that encounter. This, for Levinas, should not be seen as empty, feel-good rhetoric. The implication is that when somebody needs me, even if I turn away from them, I cannot escape the demands that their face puts on me. Instead, I am forced to confront the consequences of my action. Levinas's idea here comes from the synthesis of two camps, the dialogical philosophy of Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig, and the phenomenology of Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger, four people we've talked about. The key modification being that we must go beyond the abstractions of phenomenology and ontology, right? Heidegger becomes a Nazi, right? He, and that's exactly Levinas's point. You could be a brilliant philosopher and your philosopher actually leads you to become a Nazi, right? To join that party, to see why one must look no further than Heidegger's own participation in the Nazi party. The danger of such an approach is that one loses sight of the presence of the other in the name of some grand ethic. And that is that it is they, more than any other philosophical concept, which structure my existence. So naturally, it's not hard to see the parallels between the demands of the human face identified by Levinas and the demands of the image of God in each person as expressed biblically. While for Levinas, the image of God is in the human face, in Jewish thought, it's in the person's entire being, but can be represented by the face. The face is significant for Levinas because it reflects the location of human subjectivity. In Totality and Infinity, his book, 
He specifically focuses on the eyes. In seeing the eyes of the other, we must confront their absolute freedom and unknowability. We know there is, quote unquote, someone there, but we will never know them fully. He was also probably influenced by Rosenzweig and, and the Torah, which describes revelation in terms of an encounter with God's face, right? Panim el panim, this face-to-face encounter. In Judaism, we have the idea of achzariyut, or cruelty. What specifically does cruelty entail? The medieval commentator Abraham Ibn Ezra says that cruelty is, is, is to make someone like a stranger. Achzar, right? Achzar means like a stranger. And the word for cru- cruelty is achzariyut. So how does cruelty happen? When we think of another as a stranger, right? This person is unfamiliar to me. Um, and that itself, that unfamiliarity can lead to a strangeness, to a fear, and ultimately to a, um, a a dislike or a hate because of that foreignness. And so what can lead me to, once again, those all, all of you who said a process of dehumanization. And make somebody like a stranger, someone whose face and presence you don't know, right? You don't know this person. You can't know them. We negate our responsibilities to them, thereby potentially allowing us to be cruel. At the same time, we must resist the urge to fear otherness. For some, it makes sense to love other people because we can see ourselves in them. But for Levinas, this is not the case. We don't love someone because we see ourselves in them. Rather, our obligation to the other comes from the confrontation with, with the face through which we experience their otherness. Right? It's not sameness that brings me to like someone, but otherness. There's no great achievement in treating others well because they're just like us. Right? If I treat you well because you're just like me, right? that's not some great ethical leap. As human beings, we do that naturally. Instead, it's precisely the fact that the other is not like us that puts us in relationship with an obligation to them. It's the foreignness of, of the other that awakens my ethical responsibility. Levinas takes the Torah's imperative that we must see ourselves as having been slaves in Egypt and develops it in the following fashion. Here's what he writes over here. The trauma I experienced as a slave in the land of Egypt constitutes my humanity itself. This immediately brings me closer to all the problems of the damned on the earth of all those who are persecuted, as if in my suffering as a slave, I prayed in a prayer that was not yet oration, and as if this love of the stranger were already the reply given to me through my heart of flesh. My very uniqueness lies in the responsibility for the other man. I could never pass it off to another person, just as I could never have anyone take my place in death. Obedience to the Most High means precisely this impossibility of shying away. Through it, myself is unique. To be free is to do only what no one else can do in my place. To obey the most I is to be free. So friends, I feel bad for people who don't have a narrative of oppression. Um, Because part of what Levinas is saying here, go back to the first line. The trauma I experienced as a slave in the land of Egypt constitutes my humanity itself, right? We need that historical trauma, that collective trauma, in order to, um, well, not necessarily, you know, in order to constitute this human experience of seeing the other. Now, the trick here is, how do you not have a an identity of victimhood? Because we know many minorities um, have, have a primary uh, narrative and identity of victimhood, and we know the pitfalls of that. The, 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 the challenge and opportunity is how do you hold a narrative, a, a story of oppression and of trauma while not letting it dominate you so that it cultivates an empathy and a bridge building and a responsibility rather than a victimhood. And that's what Levinas is talking about here. We hold on to this consciousness of, of historical trauma, not to dwell on that, but in order that it makes me responsible, right? It's not entitlement. 
oh, the world owes me reparations and X, Y, and Z. I, I should get all these things because I have this historical trauma. Not to say there's not a claim to those things, of course. But rather, yes, I have claims through my trauma, but primarily my trauma is here for me to execute responsibility, to show responsibility, right? And so for Levinas, and in our justice work, whatever that may be, we must recognize that those we work beside and those we seek to help are always radically other. In order to love the stranger, we must first recognize how much of a stranger they are. Levinas is forcing us to confront the fact that the stranger isn't some holy angel that has descended from heaven who must be treated with love and care. They are instead different from me. Their wants, desires, and values may in fact upset me deeply. Right? If someone takes a simplistic view of people, if you look at this picture right here, here, you just say, oh, those are 21st century, you know, people of color living in America, right? Um, but if you went into some more complexity of each person and you looked at the three people in the front who are on our staff here, and you said, oh, well, Brandon, you know, is half black and half native and has a whole rich story. And Eddie here, who is a, you know, a, a migrant, you know, and uh, was an asylum seeker from Mexico and Angelique, you know, with a, um, from a biracial family. And actually all of them there are on a Native American reservation, hours north. Those, those six people behind them are Native Americans from the Hopi tribe up on the Hopi reservation. This, they were just there a few weeks ago taking this picture where um, we were up there bringing them firewood and supplies. And so it's one thing to say, um, yeah, and, and proud you, <laughs> uh, right. And and different different religious and ethnic identities and and um, and so looking at these people, it's very easy just to be like male, female, white, person of color. Actually, each person has their uniqueness. There's no it's not just a, there's no identity of Asian Americans, right? There's so many different identities and different ethnicities of Asian Americans or or Black Americans. There's so many. There's, there's no predictable. We can't just slap on someone that they're predictable as a black American or even Jewish American, right? You can be a Republican Jew and a, and a Democrat Jew and a centrist, and you can be a, a black Jew and a white Jew, right? Or a Catholic. Maybe you think what, what the Pope did yesterday on same-sex marriage and offering blessings is the greatest form of progress. Maybe you think he destroyed the church. Maybe you think it was insignificant. It was whatever it was, right? Um, and so it goes on and on that we want to move away from labeling people simplistically, right? Politically, people do that because they want to build power and organize. And so they want to label people quickly. But rather, Levinas wants us to see the uniqueness of the other in their face, not just, you know, their political label, the the the, the ethnic label they're given by society. But, and, and also not just that we're all just humanity, we're all the same, woohoo, yeah, you know, hallelujah. And, uh, you know, that we're all really just humanity. There's no differences. Rather, no, no. There's a, there's a commonality to humanity, but each of us is radically different. Each of us is radically different. We have to talk to each other and see each other to deeply understand that. And so justice work in a Levinasian sense means being open about this, something we are loath to do in the politically correct world we live in, where language becomes empty. In the Psalms, David understands God as commanding him to seek my face, it says in Psalms 27, 8. Here's what David says. In your behalf, my heart says, seek my face. Oh, Lord, I seek your face. What does it mean to seek God's face? Do not hide your face from me. Do not thrust aside your servant in anger. You have ever been my help. Do not forsake me. Do not abandon me. Oh, God, my deliverer. Well, interesting enough, we might say, oh, sorry, one more line. Though my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will take me in, right? A lot of ink has been spilt uh, on that last line. What does it mean, my father and mother abandon me? Some people read that historically um, to say, you know, what was David's relationship to his parents? Um, some people read that as just the inevitability of human experience, that eventually every child comes to feel forsaken by their parents. I mean, the common way, the, the most tragic way is a parent who walks away from their child, right, at birth or some other time. Um, but the more common type is when a child inevitably realizes that their parents cannot protect them. 
um, which every child comes to realize um, that the parent is not God, the parent is not all powerful, and um, that that's not something tragic. That's something of maturation, and that learning that really only God, at least in this theology, is the one that will not forsake us, the one who will be with us to the end. Another form of abandonment is the death of a parent, whether it happens early or late, that it's very common for a child, whether it's a, ch a young child or an adult child, to feel abandoned by the parent when they when they die. How could you do this to me, even if it's, you know, wasn't suicide, you know, or, or wasn't through other, other um, you know, or it wasn't choiceful at all. Uh, or not, not to suggest that suicide is choiceful, of course. Um, in any case, um, <clears throat> when David talks about seeking God's face, it may be that there is a unique face, so to speak, uh, right? We're very used to Maimonidean theology, which means God has no body. And, and that is the mainstream Jewish approach, of course, that God cannot have a body. And that's one of the differences between Christianity and God be manifest in the flesh. Um, that said, um, that whether face is allegorical or whether face actually does mean the human face, that God is manifest through the diversity of human faces, that every man and every woman and, and every non-binary person and every, every um, race and ethnicity, that the face of every face of a human being is needed collectively to ultimately see the face of God. How much is this just like a human-to-human -human interaction, what David's talking about? David, King David in need, seeks the face of God, and he's frustrated that God seems to be hiding God's face from him. Why is that? Because in a face-to-face -face interaction, God would see the need to be of assistance to David, to help, in, help him in ways even his father and mother won't help him. For all of us made in the image of God, the duty is no different. This point is emphasized by Rosenzweig, a significant influence on Levinas, who explains, a man who asks cannot be disregarded. One must turn away one's eyes to reject his entreaties. As long as one meets him face to face, his request must be granted. Right? Think about somebody who mail, sends you a piece of mail asking for $20 and how you might experience that piece of mail differently than someone laying on a street curb who begs you for $20? <clears throat> How differently do we experience that face-to-face -face encounter of someone begging us for help versus an email or a letter from somebody asking for help? We may be very skeptical of the email letter. Oh, who really is this anyways? And what do they really need? And is this a campaign? More so than the person in the street. We may also be skeptical of the person in the street, but perhaps less so because we can see their face. Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi read the face in these verses as intimately connected to the heart. He's the Baal HaTanya. In the Tanya, he did some wordplay in Hebrew, recognizing that David says, my heart said for you, seek panai, seek my face. The altar Rebbe said, this means we must seek the penimiut, the innermost level, though the word sounds like my face, panim, of of the heart. The, we have to seek the innermost place of the heart. Seeking the face of God is deeply connected with our own inward spiritual journey, right? It's not looking outwards, it's looking deeper within the own heart. Today, many of the great evils of the world are not perpetrated face to face. On the large scale, <clears throat> poverty does not occur because I and my car pass by an individual person who needs help. That's not the reason for poverty, ultimately. We have systems that force millions of Americans to live without their needs met and allow billions of people to live in deep poverty in the global south. Even in our communities, we ship our unhoused neighbors to encampments, thinking we can put the needs of the other out of sight and out of mind. Factory farming, factory farming is not different. We don't see the animals we eat until they're wrapped and refrigerated in the grocery store. To be sure, Levinas did not apply his ethics to animals. Similarly, but more aligned with his thinking, we put imprisoned people and the problems they face far away so that almost none of us need to see these people who are, are incarcerated. Even warfare is something we can, do, we can try to do through cyber strategies, drone attacks, and distant missiles. 
We can degrade the other far more easily when it takes less work to turn away from their face. Right? Some of the things that the, that the most harsh critics of the war in Gaza don't uh, necessarily understand is that we don't need any, uh, Israel doesn't need any ground soldiers in there. Things could all be done from a distance if you wanted to do just carpet bombing. Now, some people might feel it's already too reckless. Um, and may, and maybe some there are some signs that it is. I mean, just the fact that what we saw about the recklessness of the three Israeli hostages were killed holding white flags might indicate some of some of the other dimensions you know, involved. I mean, war is hell. Um, but just to make this point, that war could be done totally from a distance without without ground troops at all, um, as war often is. Think about the American strategies of the wars of the last 20 years, how much how involved drone attacks were, whether we you know think that's legitimate and helpful in warfare or, or horrific. In any case, war used to be very much face to face. You forget even guns, swords. I mean, people fought with swords. You could literally see the person's face as you fought them, as opposed to shooting across a, a field or into a building. Um, warfare has changed even in that encounter at all. But friends, what about the Holocaust, going back, which consisted of a great deal of face-to-face -face killing? My gosh, I mean, um, it, it, if you can't handle hearing something intense right now, put on silence for uh, 30 seconds. Um, let me give a pause for anybody who, who needs a Holocaust trigger, trigger alert. Um, you know, one of the one, uh, I can't even, I don't even know if I can go there. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go there. Um, you, know, you know what? We live in intense times. We can talk about intense things. It's important for us to not hide from the brutalities of the world. One of the images I can never get out of my head from the Shoah, Nazi soldiers literally taking the babies from their mothers and smashing the baby's head on the wall um, and seeing how quickly, how many hits it would take to kind of blow the brains out of this of this child in front of the mother. Um, could You know, three hits was like a poor move. You want to get it in one hit. And I mean, stories like that only scratch the surface of what we're talking about, um, levels of cruelty. And of course, levels of cruelty like that exist still today as well. But for a person to uh, want to, um, you know, smash the, the, the head of a, of a baby against the wall in front of its mother and then go home for dinner, um, it's just, it's unfathomable. You know, it's unfathomable that we live in a world where humans can see humans face to face like that. And, and do and do things like that. Um, yes, Lauren. Um, I, what we what we learned on October seventh of what's capable with 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 rape and brutality and and things done to children um, was you know is um, is just is just remarkable. And we need to be sure that we um, take a stand on any uh, with, for any people in the world for any people in the world that face such a situation, that the Jews based not only on our religious teachings, but also this history, um, you know, take a stand against, um, against cruelty. And, but this is why I continue to believe that more than a political revolution, we need a spiritual revolution. We need it to be impossible that a whole society of people can be on board with such things happening. Um, and okay, anyways, um, so anyways, in the Shoah, their um, ideology enforced by the hierarchy of the society was the curtain between one person and another. Here, we're not talking about revenge, as bad as revenge is, or warfare, as bad as war is. Here, we're talking about an ideology of genocide, that there are, is a superior race and an inferior race. And you're doing something good for humanity by wiping out the inferior race, right? Um, that's, I mean, not just racism, but racism to the extreme, uh, where um, where you believe that this form of racial genocide, cultural genocide, is ultimately good for humanity because you're so blinded by the ideology of what the world needs. Um, think back also to the desire to uproot communism from the world. Um, as soon as there's a sense that there's an ism in the world that has to be uprooted and anyone who stands behind that ism is has basically lost the dignity of their lives, atrocious things can happen. The ideology of progress had even low-ranking Nazis believing that it was worthwhile to wipe out 
the Jews and others. He describes his own experience of this during World War II. He served in the French army only to be captured and sent to a German prisoner of war camp. He describes his time there as follows. The French uniform still protected us from, from, from Hitlerian violence. But the other men called free who had dealings with us or gave us work or orders or even a smile and the children and women who passed by and sometimes raised their eyes stripped us of our human skin. We were subhuman, a gang of apes. So in some ways, what's more painful than being chained up, waiting your death is not the, you know, the, the soldiers doing it to you, but the normal, the quote unquote, normal people walking by just looking at you. Um, who no longer really see you. I remember, uh, actually, there's a famous Levinas quote that the last Kantian in, uh, in Nazi Germany was this dog that in a concentration camp, uh, in, in some prisoner of war camp, he, some dog looked at him and like looked him in the eyes and like saw him. And he said it was the first time, you know, that someone not stained with him kind of saw his eyes. In the aftermath of the war, Levinas made it his life's project to remove these metaphysical barriers to seeing the other. With modern technology, we love to have the illusion of seeing the other. We look at pictures on Facebook of them. We interact distantly, though with image saturation on Zoom as we look at each other now. Are we seeing each other's faces on Zoom right now? Like, is, this, is this a real seeing or not a real seeing? <clears throat> We, we like to think these ways of seeing each other are no worse than doing so in person. But in fact, much of the time, we can totally miss the other. It's easy to feign the projection of presence when we're sitting in front of a camera. But in reality, we might be perusing email or social media when it looks like we're making eye contact. There's no replacement for face-to-face -face presence. And we would be doing ourselves a favor as a culture by trying to make face-to-face -face presence preferable perhaps even required as often as possible, especially when there are ethical consequences at stake. By spending time with one another, we realize that each of us is profoundly different, yet paradoxically bearing the same image of God. The call to seek the face helps us realize the potential of others, and it helps us realize the importance of ourselves. Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kutsk, known as the Kutzka Rebbe, memorably offered a teaching Oh, that, that picture is a mistake. I'm sorry. That is a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, not, not the Kutzka Rebbe. I don't know why he's there. I, I missed that. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> anyways, the Kutzka Rebbe memorably offered a teaching, which is a bit confusing at first. Here's what the Kutzka Rebbe said. If I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you. But if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, I'm not I and you are not you. <laughs> Let me read that again in case it's the first time you heard it. If I am I because I am I and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you. But if I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and, I and you are not you. Rabbi Mark Asher Goodman wrote, in other words, if I am only acting this way because I'm trying to be like you, then I'm not really being myself. And maybe you're not either to conclude, the, le the lesson of Levinas is that we have to see the others, see others, in order to help others become who they're destined to be. And through this relationality, we will live out the purposes of our own lives as well. Okay, dear friends, that was a mouthful. And, and, and a big pull on the hearts as well. Uh, yes, and thank you, um, Cheryl. COVID compounded the problem of not being face-to-face -face and seems that we can't totally return to what it was cannot agree more. Um, people often talk about young children who fell behind when social skills and emotional intelligence based upon those years of isolation. Um, but the truth is it, it affected um, our whole culture and our whole society in ways that, um, yeah, may in some ways be irreparable. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Yes. Okay, friends, I'd love to open up the conversation. Hi, Lauren. Time to say between two and three because they're related. I think you said they were related, right? Because you may not see the others as you, and because you were brainwashed that way. And um, I was listening this morning. I listen four days a week to um, it's called ISDF. It's, it's the um, Hasbara 
um, Office of uh, Reserves in the IDF. And very interesting this morning because they were talking about like, okay, you can get rid of Hamas and all their capabilities, but what do you do with the people who've been so brainwashed to hate you? And that's going to be, I think, almost impossible, but very, very long term. I mean, they've on both sides, right in, in Yehuda and Shamron and in Gaza, they have been so brainwashed to hate Jews. And to really believe that it's within their power to destroy Israel, and as Dafka missed that it killed Jews, and, and to destroy Israel. So what do you do with that? How do you even begin to address that amount of not seeing the other as a human being and, and being brainwashed to hate them? Yes. So um, th- thank you, Lauren, for raising that. Because um, I think that um, I think there's a problem both on the left and on the right in regards to our relationship to Islam. I think the problem on the on the um, on the right is um, oftentimes a uh, a dehumanization of Muslims, a lack of interest in bridge building and and partnership building, um, and um, and we saw some of that in the Trump administration you know, with the Muslim ban and the like, which which I stood against. And I think the naivete on the left is to not take fundamentalist Islam seriously. Now, of course, that is not to say anything about Islam fundamentally or about Muslims at large, but to not understand that hundreds of millions relate to and potentially support um, what is, in my view, a a dangerous radical fundamentalist Islam is um, a real naivete about a threat to, to, um, to global stability and, and um, people who really want to destroy the West. And um, liberals don't like to talk about that because that sounds like you're anti-Islam or you're anti-Muslim or something like that, which, I, which it should not be. Um, but just as I would oppose a Judaism that wanted to wipe out other groups of people or wanted you know, to commit genocides, um, or it's, or, it's a, or would reject forms of Christianity, which wanted to convert people by sword. Um, I also would reject forms of Islam that think the West is fundamentally evil and should be destroyed, and that Israel should be destroyed and Jews should be killed. And, and so I think we have to hold those both, that Muslims are human beings with full dignity, and we need to build bridges and, and defend their rights and do all possible to build, you know, Muslim-Jewish relations and, you know, to... Um, expand empathy and 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 community and come together. I really believe in that so deeply. I've been doing Jewish-Muslim dialogue for for years, and also understand that there is a um, a very large group of people who was who subscribe to a form of a form of Islam, which I think puts um, many people in danger. It, they they seek to kill LGBTQ people. They seek to you know oppress women. They seek to um, turn back time on progress. Um, on various fronts. And um, I want those queer people and those women to know I'm their allies against that fundamentalist Islam of oppression. And I think you're exactly right. And I think that we can't fall in the trap of being in one camp or the other, right? Like far left people who see Hamas as reasonable people who are on the side of Hamas, I think there's a sickness. There's a real sickness there. I mean, I mean, I I, I, I saw this video recently, I went viral of a, of a, of a, um, of a trans person marching next to a um, a Palestinian person who was of a fundamentalist orientation, and the and the Palestinian person of a fundamentalist orientation learned the person was trans, and the trans person's like, "Hey, we're in liberation together," and the Palestinian and and then they said, "What? Like you're trans? Don't you know what the Quran says?" Literally, this was caught on video. Like, don't you know what the trans says? about you like, you should be killed. And the person's like, "What? Like who am I marching with here?" They just thought, "Hey, we're in the liberation camp, you know, together," and like. Actually, they have a totally different orientation to the world. And so we can't be naive about that, you know? And I would think we have to wake up around those realities. And yet at the same time, um, we have to... Anyways, I think I've, I think I've made the point. So, um, Lauren, thank you for raising that. And um, I, think, I think Hamas is very dangerous. That doesn't justify killing innocent civilians. We have to do everything. Israel has to do everything possible, um, even more, um, to ensure that innocent civilians aren't killed, although it's an, it's inevitable in war, of course. And, um, uh, 
and and not dehumanize, say that these lives matter. Every life matters there. Um, you know, and yet, um, and yet see the see the evils of Hamas ideology for what they are. All right, but push back on I mean, everyone can always push back if you see any of this differently, please. Or you think I'm using any insensitive language that you want to push back on. I, I always appreciate that. You know, not having to do anything with any Judaism per se, or what we're talking about just from the very beginning and talking about the face and seeing the face and seeing the other. I'm in a wise aging class. And one of the things that we talk about is that when people get to be a certain age, they become invisible. I mean, we become invisible, I should say. Um, you know, uh, people don't want to see us as um, viable members of a community or, you know, being able to hold a, you know, hold to interact and everything like that. So um, we, we actually talk about that a lot. And the um, rabbi is Rachel Cowan, who wrote the text that we use, you know, talks about that as well. But that's what made me think of, you know, sometimes people look right through you. And then, you know, this is apart from aging. I mean, it goes apart, goes to the um, a homeless person or a disabled person. You know, if you don't want to see a person. And so this speaks to, to me, this spoke directly. What Levinas was saying is that you need to see the person. You need to see the individual. You need to, you know, have some sort of in, internal empathy for somebody, someone else's situation. Cheryl, let me ask you, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think it is that people of a more advanced age um, you know, can be dehumanized or seen past. Like, what is it about being be getting older that you think leads to that? <laughs> I I don't I you know I don't know. I mean, we talk in our group about you know um, we're perfectly capable of A B C and X Y Z and maybe doing it a little differently than we might mm -hmm. have, let's say, twenty years ago or something <laughs> like that. But um, uh, you know, it's you, you think of the curve, you know, you start as a child and there's the curve. And then, you know, at a certain stage, you go back to somewhat childlike, uh, you know, childlike behaviors or incapabilities or that kind of thing. I mean, um, you know, my dad is 97 and a half and I'm seeing I'm seeing that, you know, in him, you know, but I want him to be seen, too. And I want him to be um recognize that he still has some, you know, certainly mental capacity and all of that stuff. And maybe, I don't know, maybe people look upon those of us who have gotten older into um, as being less capable and mm -hmm. it might just be differently capable and mm -hmm. then less capable. Great, great. Awesome, Cheryl. I'm so glad you brought this in. And, and you know, and I want to just reflect for a minute on what you said and invite others uh, who want to weigh in on the chat or when you want to unmute yourself to as well uh, about this, this issue. And it, it's, it's, it's empirically true. I mean, the number of psychological studies that show the biases towards people who are older, um, you know, that, um, you know, the assumptions about them and um, it, it has to do partially, it has to do with some understanding of beauty that young is beautiful mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. old is not beautiful and beauty mm -hmm. can be trusted more. And there's something more liked about beauty. Part of it has to do with what you said about productivity, that in America, we value people because they're productive. And when you're retired, how productive can you be? And if you're not productive, what value are you, right? We have a society that values what people can contribute, what they can do. And you've lost your value when you're not a working person, when you're not producing for the society. Another idea is that older means you're backwards, right? You hold a backwards ideology. You're out of date. Millennials, we got it all right because we're on the forefront of progress. But you must be sexist with your backwards thinking and homophobic and da-da-da-da-da, right? We didn't start the fire. Your generation started the fire, right? And so it's, it's, it's it, you know, it's... Uh, but then to, chat, then to get into Levinas... I think that like a home, an older person represents an obligation to me. Once a person 
has a need, a potential need, there's an obligation. And we want to shy away from obligation. I want to look away from the homeless person. I want to look away from the person, you know, over 70, because they might be needing something from me, right? And I don't know if I want to slow down what I'm doing. So those are a few, those are three or four of my thoughts on why there might be a bias or even a dislike or even a disgust or even a turning away from people who get older. And I think it's a real sickness. I think it's a, one of the great societal ills we have in America. I'd put it in the top 10 list as to how do we kind of psychologically rewrite ourselves to see aging differently. But let me pause there to hear if, if others want to weigh in on that point before we move on. Or Cheryl, if you want to jump in again on that. Well, I was just going to add one other thing, and that is um, that has to do with how we see ourselves versus how we see the other. And this goes right down to race and, uh, you know, I, I mean, certainly any kind of ethnicity or anything like that. If we see an other and they're not like us, you know, it might that I, I you know, I just just <laughs> just having I mean, just having been in Colombia, I mean, it you know, and when this, you know, and learning all about how the Spanish came over, the white Spanish came over, and you know, the indigenous peoples were you know wiped out or marginalized or whatever, and of course that happened in you know here too, you know, the same same kind of um, uh, explorers and conquerors came here too, but. I think that's part of it. And, and, and you, if you go to like art representation, you know, it's very funny when you see an uh, artistic rendering of the Jews crossing the desert and they're dressed like, you know, 19th century Hasids, you know, that's not, that's not how it was, you know, but that's, there's a comfort in, in, in um, familiarity. That's comfort and familiarity. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Like Cheryl, I've been doing wise aging for a couple of years now, a couple few years. And I'm wondering whether age, the aged, uh, represents some sort of threat. Mm. One is that we represent what others have not yet experienced. And when we're young, we have to know it all. We mm. have to pretend tend that you know we're on top of everything in every moment that we've got all the answers and to encounter someone with another answer is threatening um and the fact that at least for me and for many others we become more curious and open as we get older and that also is very threatening mm. to those who are shut off and have to know everything. The other part is just something that you alluded to, which is this person may become a burden to me. They may want something mm -hmm. of me. Mm -hmm. And I'm too preoccupied with my own little self in my own little world that I don't want anybody imposing anything on me mm -hmm. and I don't know if any or all of that is true but it sure feels that way often mm -hmm. and the kindest thing a young woman said to me when I was tangoing one day was she came up to me and she said I want to be you when I grow up <laughs> and I thought whoa hey you're young and beautiful and tall <laughs> and graceful and you want to be me real um, but I I've been enjoying that ever since. So <laughs> we'll see. I'm Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. I like those points about, yeah, the notion of threat. I would add that to, yeah, to the list. Um, partially about, yes, you have more experience than I have, and that feels threatening. Partially might still be just, you know, the threat of authority that some, some, somebody 30 years old or 45 years old may still have a teenage mentality that somebody older is like a principal or like a parent, someone who, you know, is going to give them advice or give them rules or, or be, you know, but then also your point around being more open-minded. I think there's a bad stereotype that, that seniors are rigid in their thinking, but I think you, you, you give a great counterpoint to that, that actually many who engage in, um, in adult learning, um, or, or, you know, are actually some of the most curious and open-minded people of our society. 
and that someone in the ideological fervor of their 30s, 40s, or 50s or something might feel threatened by someone who's got a broader perspective. So yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for all that. Okay, Lauren, back to you. About the aging, I think it's something societal. I kind of see this being part of being uber capitalistic, like you've got to have a purpose and you've got to be productive. And older people in society's eyes are not productive enough. Um, I felt I saw more concern from the elderly in Israel. Not that Israel is completely capitalistic now, but I, I felt that like maybe there was an ethnic thing. I certainly saw, I worked in geriatrics, and I certainly saw among my patients, Chinese patients and Italian patients, their, their families were like so involved. And there was so much love, but also respect. And I, I think it's a societal thing. Maybe it's a wasp culture thing, but um, not. I don't believe all societies are as dismissive of the elderly. To be honest, it's even hard not to internalize it because for me to be retired for a long time was very difficult. Like to feel I had a purpose and a use anymore. You know, what am I if I'm not getting up every day going to work and helping people? So, um, that's just my take on, on the aging thing. And thank you, Cheryl, for bringing it up. Thank you so much, Lauren. Okay, so I'm going to read Gary Gartsman's great comment on the side, and then I'm, I'm going to conclude. Um, I'll conclude our time today. But yeah, so he writes over here, radical alterity. Um, again, alterity means otherness. Um, Levinas emphasized the radical otherness of the other, emphasizing that the other is not an object to be understood or assimilated but a unique irreducible presence. This alterity disrupts our self-centeredness and calls us to transcend our egoism. Thank you, Gary. I think that's such a great place to, to end today to, um, you know, so oftentimes when we meet people, we immediately want that commonality. Um, we immediately want to feel that we're the same. And, but to disrupt that self-centeredness and actually Find the uniqueness of the other and the difference and the dignity of that difference. Again, on another book, um, feels so important for our time and um, such a great challenge. And then, you know, at the end of Lame is that famous line, you know, to love another person is to see the face of God. What does it mean for us to see the face of another to tr in, in its fullness and to almost get out of our get out of ourselves to do that? What an amazing spiritual exercise for us to think about participating in today, in some encounter we're going to have today of how to truly see somebody in some sense. Friends, thank you for joining and looking forward. Thanks for that note over there, Alex, about scheduling and look forward to seeing y'all uh, next Thursday.